Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 13, and we're going to look at just a very uh, wonderful, really unique time because we're going to see basically the, the final moments of one of the great prophets, Elisha, and some things that took place during that time. And uh, if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand with us for the reading of the Word of God. And we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Now, Elisha, 2 Kings 13, 14. Now, Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now we'll look at this a little more in a moment, but there's so many things about this that make it noteworthy. First of all, Joash was not a godly king. He was a wicked king and obviously had... Uh, was going a different direction than the prophet was going. But I must have had great respect for the prophet. And so he comes and he's, like I said, weeping and over him as he's dying. Verse 15, And Elisha said unto him, said to the king, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows, plural, arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Elisha said to Joash, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Elisha said, open the window eastward. And there's a definite reason for that. Eastward is towards Syria. That's, there's um, kind of their perennial enemy, the Syrians, and open your window eastward, and he opened it, then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot the arrow, and he said, Elisha said, and this is such an important thing to understand what I believe the Lord wants us to get out of this, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And Elisha said to the king, Take the arrows, the remaining arrows. And the king took them, he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed, or quit. And the man of God was wroth with him. He's old, he's feeble, he's dying, but he's still, he's still mad. The man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. You could have completely wiped them out. You could have destroyed them, but 
as it stands, you're only going to smite them three times. So let's pray together, all right? Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and you know our heart tonight is a people. We want to learn, we want to grow, we want to be challenged by your word, and I pray for your help, Lord, and I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to your word and what it has to say to us. And Father, may, may we learn things or remember things or commit to things tonight that would please you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So again, it's an interesting scene to me. The king of Israel visiting this dying prophet. And uh, this is really, in essence, I think, Elisha's final message. It's not his final miracle. His final miracle was after he was dead. After Elisha died, you may remember the story when Elisha died, then there was a war going on, and these people were in the land, and they had to get rid of a body, and they threw that body into Elisha's sepulcher, and when he touched Elisha's bones, he came to life. So his last miracle was after he was dead and gone. But, but this is really his final message, I believe, as far as the Word of God is concerned. And to me, it's a remarkable thing that the king, the king of the nation would even come to visit this prophet of God. And, you know, I've thought about this. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing, you know, if when we die, when we're on our deathbed or we're gone, that even the ungodly, you know, would pay their respects for us. And they, they're show, he's showing his respect for Elisha. And so Elisha, as soon as this takes place, he's, he's, weeping, over, he's weeping over the king, or weeping over Elisha, the king is, and so Elisha tells him, to uh, get a bow and arrows in verse 15. Um, uh, he said, take bow and arrows. Now these, you know, we think of bow and arrows, you're probably thinking about, you know, killing a, a deer or something of like that. But these were weapons of war. Take these weapons of war. And by the way, Israel was at war at that time with the Syrians. And, and he said, take these, take these. And then verse 16, he says, put your hand upon it. Put your hand upon the bow. So visualize this, if you could, please, that um, the king takes the bow, puts his hand upon the bow, and then the last part of verse 16, Elisha put his hands, he put his hands upon the king's hands. This feeble, aging, dying prophet put his hands upon the king's hands, whose were upon the bow, and um, verse 17, he said, open the window eastward. I already mentioned this, and he had he fired off an arrow and shot, and and is after he shot this arrow, then Elisha said to the king, "The arrow is the uh, your deliverance from Syria. That arrow you just shot represents your deliverance from Syria." And I don't know if this is true or not. You can't believe everything you read in the commentary, but a lot of people say that it was like an ancient custom that before a war or during a wartime, a soldier would take an arrow and fire it in the direction of their enemy as a sign basically that they were at war and that they were going to engage in warfare. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's exactly what Elisha had him to do was to fire this arrow. And again, what did the arrow represent? It represented the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. It was symbolic. It illustrated something. It was an object lesson. 
It was something that the, that the king could see. The king shoots this arrow, and the prophet said that arrow is the, the, the Lord's deliverance from Syria. And what is the significance of the prophet putting his hands upon the hands of the king? And I believe very clearly it symbolizes that that Israel would be firing the weapons, but it was God that would give them the victory. Elisha was representing to them that their victory would come from the Lord. And so their deliverance was from the Lord, but the agency was human instrumentality. And Joash would take the bow and arrows, but God would give the victory because he couldn't win on his own. And by the way, this is really worth pausing for a moment and thinking about this whole principle that God is mighty to work and God can do anything, but almost always God uses people in what he does. He rarely, if you think about it, God rarely works apart from human involvement. You know, we've rejoiced many times over the years of the miracle of God, of Jesus raising the paralyzed man who had no way to help himself. He was carried to see Jesus by four people. He was let down the roof, through the roof, till the roof off, let him down through the roof. Jesus healed this man, and it was a great miracle, and God did it. But he used people. God uses people. We want God to do things, but we can't do it on our own. Joash could not do it on his own, but the Lord could do it through him. Even the incarnation, the wonderful thing that God became a man. Emmanuel, God with us. But how did God do that? He did it through the womb of a virgin young woman. God, God uses people. The feeding of the 5,000. That 5,000 men plus women and children were fed and had 12 baskets left over. But God used a lad's lunch and God used the disciples to do it. And, and I'm just saying God uses people. We want God to do things, but you know what God's going to do things through? He's going to do things through us. Now we may say, well, I, he doesn't have much to work with, and I would agree with that concerning myself, but that's the way God works. I mean, he, he saved the Ethiopian unit out there in the Gaza desert, but how did he do that? He used a deacon, Philip, to go out there and come alongside his chariot, engage him in a conversation. God divided the Red Sea, but Moses lifted up the rod. The walls of Jericho came down after the people walked around Jericho and blew their trumpets. It's just principle. If you want God to work, if I want God to work, God works through people. He uses people. And sometimes we want God to work, but we don't want to be engaged. My wife and I were reading uh, yesterday. She was reading and I was listening, actually. From our brown devotional book, Straight Paths Devotion, from Psalm 127, where it says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. See, we can build, we can try to build, but it takes the Lord to make it happen. We, the watchman can watch, but it's the Lord that keeps the city. It's just the way it works. It's this God's hand, God's hand on our hands is the only way we're going to have victory. But we can have victory through Him. And so this is illustrated. And look in verse 17 where Elisha says near the end of verse 17, he says, the arrow, of the, the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians and Aphek till thou have consumed them. What a promise. 
The arrows represented the Lord's deliverance. The arrows represented, it was, it was an object lesson of the Lord's deliverance from Syria, and the, he would give them victory through, the, through, these, through the, uh, them, them engaging in battle, but it was the Lord that does that. So look with me, view it again, to verse 18, and this really gets to the message. And Elisha said, take the arrows, that's the remaining arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, smite the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. Now what do the arrows represent? The Lord's deliverance from Syria. And he said, smite the ground. He did three times and then he stopped. Elisha didn't tell him how many times to smite the ground. But he did tell them, he did tell him what the arrows represented. The arrows represent victory over the Syrians and he did it three times, and then he stopped. And as we read a moment ago, Elisha was angry with the king, and basically said, "Why didn't you smite him? Why didn't you smite him five or six times? Why did you just smite him three times? If you'd have, if you'd have smitten him five or six times, he says this, then you would have completely annihilated them." Verse nineteen: Thou should have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria, but, but thrice you have limited. That's what he's saying to, to, to the king. You've limited how many victories you're going to win. Why? Because you only smote three times, and you could have smitten five or six times, and you would have consumed them. The arrows are symbols of victory. You know, I'm, I'm sure... By the way, just, let's just back, back up. I may forget to say this. Look in... Look in chapter 13 at the end of the chapter. In verse 24 of chapter 13, it says, So Hazael, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead. A changing of the guard in Syria. But look down at the last part of verse 25. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. What a coincidence. The king of Joash... The king Joaz beat him three times. But, but on his deathbed, Syria said, or Elisha said, it's exactly what's going to happen. You're, you're only going to defeat him three times. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. Imagine you're, imagine you're the king, and you're told that the, the arrows that you hold are the arrows of the Lord's deliverance, and you're told to smite the ground. You only smite it three times, and you're rebuked for that because if you could have had ultimate victory, but later on, sure enough, Israel has three victories over the Syrians. I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, don't you think, don't you think the king, if he had a do-over, would smitten the ground more than three times? Maybe four times, maybe five times, maybe six times, maybe a dozen times. Let's put it. Let's kind of let's kind of illustrate it this way. Imagine you have to use your imagination. Imagine that the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, and I, I do not know, if I, for $1,000 I couldn't tell you the name of the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, but let's just imagine that the St. Louis Cardinals, the manager said, you know, gives them a baseball bat and says, I want you to hit the ground with that baseball bat, and that base, every time you hit it represents a victory over the Chicago Cubs. How many times do you think he would hit the ground? Do you think just once? 
or twice or three times, he'd probably still be hitting the ground. And, that's, and, that, and I, believe, I believe by reading this text over and over and thinking about it, I believe that the king understood what those arrows represented and he, he, well, we don't know why he quit hitting the ground. We could speculate and I don't want to speculate, but I know this, he, if he had a do-over, he'd hit it a lot more times. And I was, as I was thinking about this in this message, I was thinking, it wouldn't surprise me, I'm not saying it's going to happen, it wouldn't surprise me when we get to heaven if we might find out that if we would have used the things that God has given us to use the way he wants us to use them, we might have seen a lot more victories in our life and a lot fewer defeats in our life. So what cost... What cost Joash and Israel the complete victory? It was not the, the might of the Syrians. It was not the fact that it was God's, not God's will. It was not the fact that God was too weak to do that. It's because he only smote those arrows three times. That's all you can get out of this passage. That's why it's here for us. And I believe Joash understood that. He fell short because he quit doing the thing that Elisha said would provide victory. He did it three times, but he quit doing it. And by the way, his decision didn't just affect him. His decision affected other people, even the whole nation. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about three basic lessons. This is not the end of the message, but this is this, three things that I get out of this. Number one, for us, this, let's apply it to our life. The first one is this. We ought to discover what God says will work to give us victory in this life. We ought to figure that out. God does not want us to be defeated. That is not God's will. You may, be, you may think, well, I'm never defeated. Thank God for that. You may think I have a lot of defeats in my life. You may even think I've been defeated for a long time. And I'm just telling you, God does not want his children to be defeated. We ought to discover what it is for for the king here, for Joash, it was, it was smiting those arrows. And I think we can be sure. I, I'm just confident, absolutely confident. And I'm not saying I have victory all the time, but I know this. God gives us the means. God gives us the tools. God gives us the principles. God gives us the disciplines that if we'll do what God says, we'll experience victory in our life. And by the way, whether we realize it or not, we have perpetual enemies. Just like Syria was an enemy of Israel, we have, we have perpetual enemies that we deal with. So we need to discover what God says will work. Second of all, we need to do what God says will work to bring consistent victory. You know, it's one thing to know what works. It's another thing to do what works. If I were to walk around here today and ask people in this room, Tell me something that if you did every day of your life that will give you more victory. Most everybody in this room could say this, 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 this. But are we doing those things? It's one thing to know. It's another thing to do. These, you know, Joash knew. He knew what it would take. He knew what God had given him, the promise he had given him. And most people know, we're going to get to this again in a moment, most people know the things they ought to do but fail to. So these, these arrows represented what it would take to win over Syria. So we need to figure out what it is it takes to win. For God to give us the victory. Not us, but God to give us the victory. Number two, we need to do what it takes. Do what God leads us, shows us to do. But number three, we need to 
keep doing what God says, not stop doing what will work. What, what was Joash's great mistake? It wasn't that he hit the ground three times, it's that he quit hitting the ground. He quit. And I, Elijah was angry. Elisha was angry. You know, I've read various commentators and people's opinions about this, and some people say just because Elisha was angry doesn't mean he should have been angry. Maybe he just was, had a bad day or something. But I, but I think he was angry for good reason. He was angry. He was, he was angry because he wanted his people to win. He was angry because he wanted Israel to have the victory over the Syrians. So let's not quit doing the things that God promises us. Joash started, he did it three times, and then he paused. And when he paused, the blessing paused. Very simple. So let's think about this tonight in the remaining time we have. What arrows, what arrows will lead us to victory? I don't want to be defeated. I want to have victory in my life. Not victory against people, but spiritual victories. We want to see God work. And what arrows will lead us? And first of all, before I get into the nuts and bolts of that, I want to say this. To win in this life, first of all, you have to be saved. These were the, listen, these were the arrows of the Lord's deliverance. We can't win on our own. It was the arrows of the Lord's deliverance. If the only victory you can have in your life is what you can do, then you're not living the victorious Christian life. God wants to give us victory. We can't win on our own. That great passage about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. If you're not saved, you don't have that, you don't have that privilege, that power of the Lord working in your life. First and foremost, you need to be saved. And by the way, doing the things we're talking about won't make you a Christian. Doing these things won't make you a child of God. No amount of activity, no amount of good works, no matter how much we discipline ourselves, no matter how much we deny ourselves, no matter how much we read the Bible and pray and go to church, we're not saved because of what we do. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So, if you're here tonight, and this is not just an tacked on, an add on, this is this is the most important thing you'll hear if you're not saved. If you, you can't possibly have the life that God wants you to have, and you sure can't go to heaven without Jesus Christ. Not without, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about good works. We're not talking about getting baptized. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about being, putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Receiving Him. Receiving the gift of eternal life returning from your sin, not trusting in yourself at all, but putting your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ, God's incarnate, took your sins and my sins upon His, upon his own body on the tree. He, he took our sins upon His own body. He paid for our sins that we could be forgiven. And there's no good thing that we can do to be saved, but put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you need the Lord in your life. You need the Lord. Once you're saved, though, we still can't win all these spiritual struggles we have on our own. We need the Lord's help. We need these arrows that God has promised to bless. And I want to give you some very basic, foundational, practical reminders of things that I believe if we would do them 
regularly, we can, see, we can see God work victories in our life. And the first one is this. Have a meaningful time every day of your life with God in the Bible and prayer. Every day of your life. Draw close to God every day of your life. Make it a daily habit. Feed upon God's Word. You know, in that, in that great passage I mentioned in Ephesians 6 where it talks about the weapons of our warfare, he says, have your loins girt about with truth. When Jesus was faced temptation in that wilderness temptation, he didn't, you know what he did? He said, as it is written, he pulled upon the word of God, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. We can't have victory on our own. No wonder we're defeated. No wonder our thought life is so messed up because we, if we don't saturate ourselves with the word of God, I've heard people say, you've probably heard people say, you may have even said it. You know, when, when I go to talk to somebody about, you know, how to deal with my problems and how to have victory, they say, well, read your Bible and pray. Like that's a, and I'm not saying that's all there is to it, but I'll tell you it's an important part of it. Right. You've heard me say this before. I've, I can't remember, can't tell you how many times someone's been in my office over the years, struggling, defeated, financial problems, family problems. And I'll just ask them as a course of the conversation, tell me how many times, as a regular routine, how many times a week do you spend a meaningful time in the Word of God? It is uncanny how many people say, not very often. This, this book, it's not, it's not just because it's a leather book with pages and marks on it, it's because it's the Word of God. I've been loving these Wednesday night Bible studies Pastor Weiss has been doing about going through Psalm 119 because it just emphasizes the importance of the Word of God. Spend time with God. Shut down everything. Get the phone out of your hand. Get, get a place where it's quiet and still and talk to God and let God speak to you through the Word of God and just do it every day and don't stop doing it. People start doing it and they'll do it for a week or two, maybe do it for a month or two. Do it, do it every day, do it every week, do it for months, do it for years, do it for your whole life. I believe these are things that God will use to give us victory in our life. Meaningful time every day in prayer and God's Word. Number two, deal with sin promptly and thoroughly. When you, as soon as you recognize that you've sinned, had a sinful thought, said, a, said something that was not right to your wife or your husband or your friend, every time, every time we do something that's wrong, make it right. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I remember when we still lived in Texas, before we moved here, that would have been in 1975 or 76. I remember reading a little booklet as a new believer about this matter of confessing sin. It's like spiritual breathing. You, you exhale, you confess your sin. By inhale, you're, forgiving, you're receiving the forgiveness of God. It was just a way to illustrate what it, and that ought to be a way of life. You don't wait till Sunday. You don't wait till Saturday night mass or whatever it is. You go to the confessional. You do it every day. Every day. The moment you do it, the moment you know you've sinned, confess it and forsake it. Turn from it. Back to, the, back to Ephesians 6. A part of that 
the armor of God is a breastplate of righteousness. It's being right with God and right with others. When you, when you wrong somebody, get, humble yourself and admit you're wrong. Humble yourself and go to your child and say, I was, I was wrong about this. You say, well, I couldn't. You think a parent's ever wrong? Absolutely. Humble yourself. Do it immediately. You know, pride keeps us from being honest with ourselves, and pride keeps us from being honest with God, and pride keeps us from having God's power upon our life. Sin grieves the Spirit of God. Don't let offenses go unresolved. Forgive people who've wronged you. Forgive people who've hurt you. And don't stop doing it. Peter asked the question, how many times shall I forgive someone that wrongs me? Seven times? Would that be adequate? Would I? Jesus said 70 times seven. In other words, every time they sin against you, every time they, they wrong you. You know, I, I, liked, I like going through life without offenses, without wronging anybody or anybody wronging me. But I tell you, what I really like is when, there have, when we haven't had an offense that we try to make it right. Deal with sin promptly and thoroughly and don't stop doing it. Don't stop doing it. You know, we asked, you know, reading the, the account this morning in Sunday school about Eli and the sons of Eli and how Eli was up no doubt in his 90s, in his 90s, and yet he was being lenient with his sons, he, was, he wasn't dealing with things promptly, he wasn't dealing with as he should, and we asked the question, how, how many of you, nobody answered, but how many of you, you can see, I have, the old, I have the older people in my class, they're not old, they're just older. How many of you can recognize in your own life how that in your further down the road you find yourself maybe letting things slip that you didn't let slip when you were younger and the reality is most of us can see that. We excuse it sometimes but really we need to recognize where we're wrong and admit it. Not make excuses for it. So number two, deal with sin promptly and thoroughly. Number three, by the way, we only have 47 of these. Number three, number one, meaningful time with God. Number two, keep our, keep our sins confessed and forsaken and forgiven. Number three, walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. There's, there's no good thing that dwelleth within you that is within your flesh. Nothing, zero, nada, zilch, nothing. No good thing in our flesh. The flesh will fail us. The king could not win through his own flesh, and that's why he needed the hand of God upon him. We can't win on our own. That's why we're always putting off the old, putting on the new. Every day, acknowledging, acknowledging how much we need the Lord. How many times we've said in our life, God, I don't want to live in the flesh today. Any one of us could do it. Hear me, any one of us could do it. We could get up in the morning, neglect our time with the Word of God, go through the work day, go through our responsibilities, clean up around the house, mow the grass, and all do it in the energy of the flesh without depending upon God, and none of it would be pleasing to God. None of it. Every day we ought to be putting off the old man, putting on the new man, confessing our sin, yielding our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And don't just do it, do it every day. Do it all the time. Some of you young people sitting here, you're listening attentively, you're 
8, 10, 12, 15, 20 years old. Say, so how long should I do this? As long as you're on this planet, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Walking in the Spirit. Yielding yourself to God. Number four, stay faithful and committed to your church. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. God, God meets with us when we assemble. Aren't you glad for that? When God, we sing and we worship, God meets with us. Every service, we worship God. Every service, we get into the Word of God. Every service has something to help us grow. Pay attention. Be engaged. Be thinking. Be applying it. Lord, what do you want to speak to me through this? And respond. I mean by respond, I mean respond to God. I tell you, I appreciate the message so much this morning. We can, it's easy to say, I believe this, this, and this. But according to the Bible, according to the Bible, what you believe is not just what you say believe, you believe. What you believe is what you do. I'll, I'll, James said it clearly. I'll show you my faith by my works. Our prayer life, whatever the case may be, Pastor talked about that today. Pay attention. Respond to what God says to you. And don't let the devil get you out of church for any reason, any time. Every time we can be here, we ought to be here. Stay faithful and committed to your church. And keep doing it. Not just a few times, not just a few years, but the rest of your life. I heard someone say real recently, and I'm not being hard on them. I'm just going to use it as an illustration. Wasn't even anybody in our church. Basically said, though, you know, I've gone to church regularly so much of my life that if I miss now and again, it really doesn't bother me that much. And I didn't rebuke him, but I wanted to. I, I tell you, we shouldn't give ourselves a pass just because of what we've done in the past. What's right, what was right to do when I was a zealous 21-year-old hippie that got right with God and got fired up about serving God and thought God could use me. What was right for me then is still right for me now. My, my, I may have slowed down in my pace a little bit. I may not be able to do some of the things I used to do, but I don't want to, I don't want to say, well, I'm old, I'm getting old. You know, let the younger people do it. I don't like that mentality. Stay faithful and committed to your church. Number six. Number six, this is an important one. They're all important. Give God whatever He wants. Give God whatever He wants. And by the way, God deserves first. He wants the first part of our day. He wants the first day of the week. He wants the, he, he wants the first part of our income. You say, God wants a lot. God, God deserves a lot. These aren't things we're making up. These are things that God says in the Bible. Give God whatever He wants. You may be sitting here tonight. I'd be surprised tonight if there's not someone, at least someone sitting here saying, I know there's some things God wants for me and I'm just not going to let Him have them. I'm telling you, you're making a mistake. You'll never look back on your life. You will never look back on your life. I'll never look back on my life and regret what I gave to God that God wanted for me. What I'll regret is when I held on to something that God wanted me to give to Him. And the first thing he wants is he wants your life. God wants your life, right? You say, well, I don't know how long that is. It doesn't matter. God wants it. He wants your life. Give him your life and you won't have a hard time giving him your tithe. 
If you have a hard time giving God your tithe, it just tells me you haven't really given in your life because it all belongs to Him anyway. God doesn't bless selfishness. Just keep giving God whatever God wants. Whatever He wants, just give it to Him. If He, if he speaks to you in some message, you're reading the Bible, He speaks to you, just give God what He wants. And number six, make serving others a lifestyle. You know, back to the Ephesians 6, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. A part of our spiritual armor is being prepared to share the gospel, prepared to serve the Lord, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Always prepared to help other people. God didn't call us. God, Jesus didn't come to be ministered to. He came to minister and give His life a ransom for many. Selfishness will not win in this Christian life. You can be selfish. You can say, I'll let other people do it. You can do that, but that's not what God has planned for us. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and Jesus said, this is an example for you. Get involved in the ministry. You may not be able to do what someone else is doing, but do what the Lord wants you to do. Determine to be a, a servant. Determine to be, a, to be a, an encourage of others. Find a place to serve, and don't ever stop serving. That would be a bad place to be in life to me. It's when you could not serve and couldn't serve the Lord in any capacity. And I know some people here have kind of been experiencing some of that. I want to serve and I don't know how to serve, but don't ever stop doing it. These to me are things that if we'll do these things, I'm not telling you doing these things will in itself give you the victory. I'm saying this, these are tools that God has given us. You do this. You just keep serving. You keep giving God what He wants. You keep confessing your sins and walking in the Spirit and, and making the Word of God, let the Word of God fill your life and be committed to doing what the Lord wants you to do. You know what? God will give you victories. And don't stop smiting the ground. So God gives us tools like this. And there are other things we could talk about, but God gives us tools like this. But here's what we're doing. I'm, gonna look, I'm, look, I'm not landing, but I'm looking for a landing place. I think sometimes, this is what I got out of this text, I think sometimes we're a little bit like Joash. We know what God has promised to bless. We know things from the Bible that God would use to give us victory. And we may even start doing those things, but like Joash, we stop doing them before the victory is realized in our life. Our lives are not changed because we know what we ought to do. Our lives are changed because we do what God commands us to do and we keep doing it. You know, there are people in this room who've been saved longer than I have. There are people in this room who've been serving the Lord and had an interest in things of God longer than I have. But I just look at my own life. I mean, it's been, what, 47 years since we started. We couldn't imagine, it's 21-year-old, you can't imagine what it's going to be like. We, I, we had no idea. But my recommendation would be just to, to be committed as a lifestyle to keep doing the things that God wants us to do. I mean, how many people have I talked to in my life? They, I've, 
you know, they say, well, I, I started tithing, and, and you know, it's amazing how it started working. And then a few months later, they've quit again. Isn't that crazy? Why would we do that? We do, God promises to bless. You can't outgive God. Why would we stop doing it? Keep doing right. Do right when you feel like it. Do right when you don't feel like it. It has nothing to do with how we feel. And remember this. I've, I'm going to make this personal. I can remember every, every dad here, every husband here, every mom here. When we quit smiting the arrows, it doesn't just affect us. It affects those around us. It affects our families. It affects our friends. I'm telling you, it's serious. Every defeated Christian, and I think I know some defeated Christians, every defeated Christian has all the tools they need through Christ, through the weapons He gives, the disciplines He, he tells us to use, the exercises He gives us to see victory. It's not because they can't have victory. It's not because it's an impossibility. Being defeated is not because we don't have the, the wherewithal to have victory. It's because we're not doing the things that God tells us to do. Keep doing what God's promised to bless. Keep doing it until you die. I was thinking about the Apostle Paul and his final letter his final epistle, the second epistle to Timothy, his finally wor final words that we would have from him in the word of God and the final words he had for his son in the faith, for Timothy. He could have said a lot of things. He could have said, Timothy, I'm going to tell you something I've never told you, something God showed me, something I've never shared with anybody else. He could have said that, but he didn't. This is what he said. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. You just keep doing the things you know to do. Don't stop doing it. And you know what? It seems simple, but sometimes it's complicated. We complicate it. We overthink it. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't stop short of finishing the task? Aren't you glad He didn't get halfway through the crucifixion and say, you know, that's enough's enough. You know, I don't think, personally, that most people who get on the wrong track do it intentionally. I don't think they do it on purpose. But I think one thing we learn from this passage is this. If you stop, if you stop doing something, and you know what that something is, maybe it's witnessing, maybe it's giving, maybe it's praying, maybe it's getting in the Word, maybe it's serving, but when you stop doing the right thing temporarily, it could very easily lead to doing the wrong thing permanently. And a lot of people do that. And I'm not here to accuse anybody or anything, but you know, people start, well, I'm going to quit going on Wednesday night for a while, or I'm going to quit going on Sunday night for a while, or I'm going to, I'm going to quit going to Sunday school, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of not as easy to get up there. I'm just telling you, when people stop doing one thing, it's not, it's not uncommon that the next thing, they'll start doing something else, they'll never stop doing something else, and maybe tonight, maybe tonight, if you examine your own heart, if you examine your own life, you could think of things that over the course of your life, God has said, this is what I want you to do through His Word. 
This is what I want you to do. And you've stopped. Maybe you stopped recently. Maybe you stopped a long time ago. Maybe you're hit and miss. All I want to say is, you need to take up those arrows and keep hitting the ground. Keep taking the things that God says will give you victory and don't let anything keep you from doing it. Don't let anybody stop you. I don't, I'm not saying, I just want to repeat, I'm not saying that doing these things will make everything right, but I'm saying this, you can't ex- I can't expect God to bless my life if I'm disobeying Him or not doing the things that God wants me to do. And I can't, in good conscience, I don't think we can sort of find relief by saying, well, I'm doing this and this and this, and that's good. But what about that and that and that, that you knew you were spo- you knew at one time you were supposed to be doing, but now somehow it's not. I'm just saying, don't stop doing. Figure out what God says he'll bless, what God says he'll bless, and do what God says he'll bless, and don't stop doing it. Amen? I think about young people a lot, and I think about these young people. If these, if these young people, and many of them are doing it, if these young people would start spending some time every day just talking to God privately and reading their Bible, and they'd do it through their childhood years, and they'd do it into their teen years, and they'd do it into their adult years, and they'd do it into their, the middle part of their life, middle age, they'd do it into their senior years. Just You say, preacher, do you really believe it'd make a difference? How could you not think it would make a difference? Stop. We stop smiting the ground. No wonder, no wonder Elisha got angry. He got angry at him. If you'd have just kept doing it, you would have annihilated your enemies. Let's keep doing it. Amen.